Oh my goodness, it's good to be with Christ's Journey once again. And whether you're a longtime member here, or your first time guest, or you're with family or friends, or you're our Kindle campus family, our Gables campus family, we welcome you and invite the blessing of God upon you. And I would like for you to join me as we declare our confidence in our awesome God. Would you repeat after me? Nothing is too hard for God. Okay, got two more times coming. Nothing is too hard for God. Okay, even if you're in your own living room all by yourself, let's put voice to our faith and then speak it out together. Nothing is too hard for God. And we declare our faith that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and that nothing is too hard for our God. Now, I'd like to... Uh, Maybe begin in a strange way today, this, this talk. Have you ever taken a cemetery tour? Uh, what I mean is, I imagine I spend more time than most in, uh, in cemeteries because I regularly walk with people through the valley of the shadow of death. It's part of God's calling and a great honor and privilege that I receive to be able to do that. In fact, I did it this very week with the Lummis family. And so our prayers of hope and love for each of them, as for every one of us who have loved ones on the other side, and we are looking forward to that reunion someday, um, but a cemetery tour. Miami City Cemetery is the oldest municipal cemetery in our area. The mother of Miami, Julia Tuttle, is buried there, and so are several soldiers from uh, the Civil War. Union and Confederate both. I visit my father's grave when I am in Kansas City sometimes, and it's like a reality check for me. In fact, I never leave a cemetery without, without being reminded that I'm on a clock. I mean, we all are. And I'm not trying to be morbid there. I'm just telling you the truth, right? Uh, but you don't have to do a cemetery tour to realize that uh, death is coming our way. You can just watch a news report. They're loaded with reports of death all the time. Some by disease, some by accident, some by crime. Or you can tune in to whatever your channel of entertainment is. And I'm telling you, you're going to see lots of death there, probably. Those TV shows and movies. What's the famous line from Braveheart? Every man dies. Not every man really lives. So we all have a coming appointment with death. It's part of the conundrum of life. Do you know what a conundrum is? Conundrum is a riddle or a difficult problem, a confusing problem. And how you face, how you, I'm talking about you now, how you face death is part of your worldview. Everybody's got a worldview. We're in a series on worldview. Uh, we're exploring storylines that give that help us make sense of our life or we're looking at framework ideas of framework that help us answer the questions of life and every worldview has got a position on this question how do we deal with the topic of death i've got a sticky note posted above my desk that simply says this good health is merely the slowest possible rate at which one can die reality check death is inevitable. We are all on our way out. A few years ago, there was a book that was trying to bring this into clearer focus. The title was simply this. When the game is over, it all goes back in the box. 
comparing this life with, uh, with like winning a board game like Monopoly and then seeing that winning the game of life on earth is at best a temporary victory. Even if you master the board and you get all the cash at the top of the corporate ladder, the vacation home, the status vehicle, that all those tokens and pieces and game prizes are left behind when you leave the game. That was the point of the book. Like in Monopoly, when the game is over, it all goes back in the box. So life on earth doesn't last forever. That's what the author was trying to say. And in light of that, how do you make sense of it? How do you make sense of life? What do you, uh, what do, you do with that? Now, we've been looking at the early chapters of Genesis in the Bible to help us see how does the biblical worldview answer the questions of life. And today we're in Genesis chapter 5, and it's the first cemetery tour in the Bible. It's actually like a death chapter, not to be ominous about it, but it's a list of descendants from Adam on. Verse 1, this is the written account of Adam's family line. And then it lists 10 fathers' names, and then all of their families uh, associated. Verse 3, Adam, then Seth. Verse 6, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, not a jeweler to our knowledge, Enoch, Methuselah, the oldest man in the Bible, there he is, Lamech, and Noah. And then throughout the tour, what you find are then these four words, and then he died. And then he died. You're reading chapter 5, you see those names, and then he died. You go through the words, it says his name, his lifespan, his offspring, and then he died. Would you like to say that with me? And then he died. That's the point of the chapter. No matter how many verses, no, I mean, no matter how many years it claims that each of these individuals lived. Adam, 930 years. Seth, 912 years. What? Enosh, 905 years. Methuselah, the oldest guy, 969 years. And then four words. What are they? And then he died. Yeah, that's like where the storyline. Now, somebody's already snagged in this. Chances are. I mean, you see, you're thinking something like this. See, stuff like this is what makes the Bible seem like a fairy tale. People don't live that long. You expect to believe that? And while I'm on the subject, it's not the only hard-to-believe thing in Genesis. Like all humanity descending from one couple? Or like a serpent that is tempting in a beautiful garden? Or like all creation happened in a week's time? Seven days? And where are the dinosaurs? You ever wondered that? And we have fossil records that they are real, and yet where are they in the story? Now, if you've ever wondered any of those things, then I'm telling you, I have. I'm glad you're here today. And I'm, I hope that you'll be listening in, not because I'm going to resolve all of those mysteries. I'm not, I hope I'm not going to disappoint anybody by you thinking that somehow I can just tie every answer in a neat little box and put a bow on it because I already know this. You wouldn't believe me if I did that. And then those questions really deserve discussion and interaction. And we just can't do that here. But I can offer some perspective and some context, and I think we'll unpack it a little bit in a second. But in all Bible passages, as you start reading the Bible, one of the things you'll discover is it's not all the same literature. It's different types of literature. Some of it is history, some of it is poetry, some of it is law. There's a, a different types of literature, but none of it was written as a science textbook. Bible scholars are all very clear about that. And yet all of it 
from Genesis to Revelation has a context. A context, which means, and then here's another point, much and most of it can be understood the same way that we read and understand information today. So even as a casual Bible reader, you can read it and you can understand so much of it, but as you read it, you know what's going to happen? This has already happened to you if you've done it. Then you're going to hit speed bump conundrums. Speed bump conundrums. Like uh, these incredible lifespans. Speed bump. <laughs> what is, you go, what is that? How does that? What does that mean? How does that work? Well, here's an overarching principle. The key to understanding the Bible is usually found in getting as close as you can to the original context of a passage in its time, in its culture, in its language, and as close as you can to what the author's original intention was, which requires some study, some digging. So it's usually not wise to jump immediately from an ancient text into a 21st century application. Does that make sense? So when you hit a speed bump conundrum, what do you do? Slow down, listen up, and look around. You, you do some digging there to find out what's going on here. So one of the things that I would bring you into on some of the questions I raised earlier, did you know that scholars have offer, they, they offer explanations about these long lifespans? And as scientists do, scientists gather data and then they, uh, they make hypotheses, and then they put the data to the test, and then evaluate their hypothesis. Well, they've tried to do that uh, around this data. Some say this, that the language may actually be speaking here of the length of a family dynasty and not simply an individual's biology, a single individual's life. Some say they postulate that the human race at that time, early on, was actually more genetically pure and less vulnerable to disease. That's what somebody's thinking in this. Or some say that since according to the story that the text, in the text it has not yet rained, which you would have to read to understand, that there may have been an expanse of water that encircled the entire globe, the entire earth, and as such was able to absorb cosmic rays from the sun that caused aging. Interesting. Okay, as to the seven days of creation, most scholars assume that the days were not intended to be understood as 24-hour time periods, but like Scripture says, a day is as a thousand years with the Lord. That's kind of a, a figure of speech, you know. It means like eons of time. And so what the writer was intending was to say that over eons of time, God brought this into being. So this may be a good, a good time to note that there are basically three questions that every Bible reader, every Bible student needs to ask whenever you are reading the Bible. Number one, what does it say? Number two, what does it mean? Number three, what do I do? These are the questions of observation, interpretation, and application. Three questions to help every student work our way through apparent conundrums. Speed bump, slow down, listen up, look around, and then get into the story like an archaeologist would do. You know, you dig out the site, you find the pieces, and you put them together and say, oh, this is, that's how it works. Or like a detective would do that's investigating a case and is discovering clues and clues and clues, and then says, oh, 
they piece the story together to say, there's the truth right there. So in this sense, Bible conundrums, and you're going to hit them, are not obstacles. They are invitations to what? To slow down and then listen up. Don't rush to judgment, but look around. By the way, if you thought or think that all human beings descended from a single couple sounds preposterous, then I would suggest it's no less preposterous than the claim that science made some decades ago now, but I read about it, and you can, if you look online, you'll find it too, that they had found some fossilized bones and named them Lucy, and they claimed that Lucy was the mother of mankind, that this was the oldest source of genetic, the oldest genetic source from which all others have come. Now, this is a secular report. They were making no faith claims. They were just saying, oh, we discovered the mother of all humanity in genetic originality. And then, of course, if you read a little bit farther down, you'll see that they say, well, maybe not the mother, maybe just the aunt. But, you know, I mean, it, but this is as science does. So all I'm saying is when you read a story in the Bible that sounds a little bump, bump, speed bump conundrum, then don't just dismiss it out of hand saying that that speed bump makes it a disqualifier to be believed. We don't just dismiss the Bible as irrelevant because its headline sounds like something that science would claim if depending on what read you do, but rather as an invitation to greater awareness and then to deeper understanding and to realize, hey, maybe there's more here than meets the eye. That's Genesis chapter 5. Conundrums slow us down so that we'll have to spend some time, take a look around. Now, of course, you can dismiss it. Some people do. But if you want to know the truth, then you've got to engage. And so what does that mean? Well, you treat these conundrums like curiosities. Curiosities allow you to now be a seeker, and the Bible's promises, if you seek, you will find. So start investigating them and ask your questions. What are your questions? What does it say? A careful reading of what it actually says, not what you thought somebody told you that it might say. No, you do your own careful reading of what does it say, then what, do, what does it mean? Interpretation, and then what do I do? Now in this case, Genesis chapter 5, here's what a closer examination shows us. What does it say? It says there's an exception to the pattern of the name, lifespan, offspring, and then he died. Read it for yourself. You'll find that. It lists 10 generations, and two of them don't say, and then he died. What is that? Noah is one of them who's still living the story that's about to be told. And then Enoch, verse 24, Enoch walked with God, and then he was no more because God took him away. Now remember, we're on a cemetery tour here, and a death chapter is taking us from Adam all the way to Noah, but right in the middle of the cemetery is this uh, story that says uh, someone didn't die. What? That's curious. See, there's the conundrum. Slow down, ask your question, and then let it become a curiosity. What do you suppose the author wants us to see? I mean, all the other players, all the other pieces are going back into the box. But the game's over. But what? But here's one that God takes away. Does he just like put the piece in his pocket? What happens? Well, we're not told. We're not told where he's taking, only that he didn't die. And that his journey to an afterlife 
involved an escort, a personal escort from God. Hmm. How's that work? Now remember that the rule that we've been reading since Genesis chapter 3, this is the storyline, Genesis chapter 3, in the aftermath of Adam's sin is that all die. But here's an exception to the rule. Why? That's the question. Why? Well, we have to be careful not to read more into the text than is there. But in all generations, 10 generations, by the way, the number 10 throughout Scripture is the number of completeness, of fullness, like in the fullness of time. So it's like the writer might be saying these are not all of the generations of Adam. Of course, it could be understood that way. But it's symbolically saying, yeah, and every generation to the fullness of his seed has died. Adam's sin has run its course, in other words, in his generations, and none of his generations are absent from sin or absent from death. All of them are affected by death, or the way the New Testament says, in Adam all die. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. But, time out, there are a few in who, who are in the middle of a lost and dying world, dying in sin, who still walk with God. Enoch did, and so does Noah. We're about to get into his story, Genesis 6-9. I believe the author is inviting us to see this. There is a way to think outside the box, to actually live outside the box. In a world where every man dies, William Wallace is right, Enoch by walking with God, didn't experience death. Speed bump. And the New Testament doesn't resolve that mystery either. Did you know that? But it, it spotlights it in another cemetery tour. This cemetery tour is in Hebrews 11. Everybody that we read about there is dead. But it says this, chapter 5, by faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. See, we're invited to seek God. And then, the, so there's the conundrum, the curiosity, <laughs> and the breakthrough. Wait a minute. Okay, the breakthrough is the truth that is found that we're to hold on to. What does it say? Okay, we've hit the speed. It says Enoch didn't die. There's the conundrum. Slow down, ask the question, what does it mean? It means there must be a way in a world of sin and death to pass from this life into even more life. How? When we walk with God by faith, that's what Enoch did. So then what do I do? Well, there's the answer. Walk with God by faith. Are you doing that? Enoch did it. Noah did it. You can too. Now remember, this is a death chapter, and it's simply raising the worldview question as uncomfortable as it can be to us, realizing everybody's going to die, then how are you going to face death? In your worldview, whatever it is that you are trusting to give framework to how you're living your life. And as you face this ultimate question, how are you going to face death? Every worldview has a viewpoint. Genesis 5 is offering the one from biblical monotheism. 
In the beginning, God, one life-giving God. And then when death came and he didn't want it, what did he do? He said, I'm going to make a way out. And we see it right there. It starts with a reminder about Adam's race in Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. In case we forgot, because that was back before the fall, Genesis chapter 1 and 2. But now, when God created man, he created him in the likeness of God. Meant to have spiritual life. He created them male and female and blessed them. And then when they were created, he named them mankind. Adam is that word. Three times in Genesis 1, the word create is used. Number one, by God creating all of the cosmos, everything that is matter and time in space, all the cosmos, God did that. Verse 21, all sentient, soulish creatures, animals. God created the word create. And then uh, verse 27, male and female human beings as spiritual image bearers on another plane, meant to reflect and relate to God himself and be blessed, spiritual, in the material. So humanity is set apart to have dominion, male and female, sharing leadership, caring for the world. And then in chapters 3 and 4, what did we see? Well, sin enters and then continues to wreak havoc on the human race, bringing more death. So now in chapter 5, what do we see? Well, death has come to all the generations of Adam. But on our cemetery tour, we see that God provided a way beyond death for those that walk with him by faith. And in the story of Noah, we see it given another name. Genesis chapter 6, verse 8, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That's the biblical worldview. That the living God provides grace for those willing to walk with him even in a world of sin and death. When we hit the conundrums, what are we supposed to do? Slow down, listen up, look around, let God meet us in the curiosities. And then as we seek, we find. What do we find? The breakthrough truth that God offers grace that leads us to life beyond death as we walk with him by faith. Now, Every worldview has got an answer for the conundrum of death. They've got to come up with one. Every position does. Naturalism, for instance. By definition, naturalism, limited to the nature of things as we see them in the material world, says that death is extinction. Death is extinction. What you call you is merely a complex mass of chemicals firing, so when you are dead, you're done. Chemicals stop firing. Now, there are softer ways to say that, but basically that's it. Now, nihilism pushes that one all the way to the metal, the pedal all the way to the metal and says, hey, what do, give, it's, not, it's not the soft stuff. The called, hard, logical, dead in truth, there is no meaning. If it all ends that way, it's futility is our future. So you might as well face the facts and realize that life is absurd and despair. Existentialism, which is another offshoot of naturalism, a little bit farther down the, the line, says, no, life can have meaning, but it's not because it does, it's because you make it have meaning. 
you got to give your, li- your own life meaning. There is no meaning. But by showing courage in the face of absurdity, you can give your own existence some level of meaning. Many people in our country do it through something called the American dream. That's a worldview. It says, oh, I've got to get so, many, so much uh, real estate, so many cars in my garage, raise two and a half kids, you know, put them through college. That's a worldview that says, I'm trying to make sense out of my life. But existentialism says, you're making that meaning. Because when you're done, you're done. Some do it through hedonism. That's another form of naturalism and existentialism. Hedonism is basically the playboy philosophy. Get what you want to give you pleasure. Another version of that is sensualism. The boomers were raised on this. If it feels good, do it. Now it's taken on a new frame. If it feels right to you, it must be right for you. So how you feel about you is how you get meaning from your life. Materialism. There's another avenue of the American dream on its dark side. It just says, no, the one with the most stuff wins. That's how you give meaning to your life. Just get more stuff. And then relativism is today's a very popular viewpoint today. It simply says, do your own thing. Because it's up to you. It's your thing. You do it. Individualism. And then the radical form of that is postmodernism. You've read about this. You've heard about this. But this... What it does is add deconstruction into the equation. So it puts even more anarchy into individualism. You're the master of your own fate. You're the captain of your own destiny. You've got to give your own life meaning. But the way you do it is by deconstructing others' viewpoints. Very popular right now. But I'm telling you, on our cemetery tour, what Genesis chapter 5 is just saying, heads up, Whatever your worldview, however you justify it, add these four words, and then you die. That's where it's all going. That's what Genesis 5 is saying, and then you die. Death is waiting for you regardless of how you live or how long you live, 900 and something years, right? Unless what? Unless you learn how to think outside the box with God. Unless you learn how to walk outside the box with God. Enoch walked with God and God took him away. Unless what? Are you walking with God? Are you journeying by faith with God? You've seen the nine dot puzzle, right? You've seen this? And it comes with these instructions. Connect the dots, all the dots with four lines without ever lifting your pen from the paper. It's a conundrum. Can you solve it? How would you solve it? Well, we took a few attempts at it. Not that. Here's another one. Oh, not that. (laughs) You only have four lines and you can't lift your pen from the paper. It's a conundrum. It's a riddle. It's a challenging, confusing, but here's the resolution. It can be done. Four lines connecting all nine dots. You say, but that's cheating. No, that's learning how to think outside the box. That's what that means. And what Genesis chapter 5 is saying, that the biblical worldview is telling you the solution is outside your box. God exists outside the cosmos. God made everything that is, but he exists outside it, just like a piano player exists outside the instrument through which she makes herself known 
by the art. Or the pianist makes himself known through what he's playing. Genesis 5 says, death comes to all who are inside this box. But Genesis 5 says, Enoch found a way from life to even more life. How? By walking with God, by grace, through faith. But there's another question, isn't there? And it's already answered intrinsically in the text. But is the end of this life the end? See, that's a question we have to ask our worldviews. And how would you know? Now, if you ask pantheism, monism, which is linked into Hinduism, they will tell you, no, it's not the end. What is going to happen to you is that you will be recycled in a series of reincarnations through which you will be required to pay all of your bad karma. So you've heard of karma, right? But the rest of the story says this, this life isn't the end. You're going to recycle until you've paid off your debt in full. Islam says, no, death isn't the end. Death, at death, you're going to stand before the divine tribunal, before Allah, and you will be judged on all your beliefs, all your attitudes, every last little action you have performed in life, and your deeds, both good and evil, are going to be weighed. And on the scales, depending on which way the scales go, then you will face either paradise or hell. That's Islam. Now, what did Jesus say? What did Jesus say? Because I told you, as we did this series, we were looking at early Genesis and then the Sermon on the Mount, the signature message of Jesus, and especially the end of it, where he says in Matthew chapter 7 that eternal destinies are waiting. These are the words of Jesus. That life will bring every person to a crossroads where there will be two gates. One is small, the other is wide, and two ways. They open to two ways. A a narrow way that leads to life, and then a broad way that leads to destruction. Here's how Jesus says it. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. Now, destruction here, the the word means, what does it mean? That's the question. Okay, that's what it says. Now, what does it mean? Jesus uses the word that means loss. It means perishing. It means eternal ruin. It means being completely cut off from... uh, what could have been and what should have been, but now you are separated from well-being and life. From Genesis 1 and 2, what God intended, now you are separated. Now, life, zoe, there are two Greek words for life. One is bios, from which we get biology, physical life. The other is zoe, and it means the spiritual quality of life that never ends. Why does the spiritual quality of life never end? Because it flows from the God who brought all things to life, the God who is spirit and sustains all life in himself, his self-existent life. And so Jesus says this, I am the resurrection and the zoe. And the one who believes in me, even though they die, yeah, so they live. This is like the Enoch principle. Walk with me and trust me in my grace. Now, there was an article in The Economist magazine, February 6th, 2020, entitled, The Death of Age, and the question, who wants to live forever? You can look it up online if you'd like. It was a review of the book Ageless by Andrew Steele about something called biogerontology, 
biogerontology. And the concept is that in, instead of attempting to cure the diseases of, the old, of old age one by one, that maybe we should attack the underlying cause, aging itself. And so Mr. Steele's thesis is that aging can be cured and soon will be. And then as part of his science, he says, um, the giant tortoises of the Galapagos Islands show no age-related decline, even though they are 170 years old. Now, I read the story, science headline, and I'm thinking to myself, science in search of eternal life, of longevity. See, just like you, just like me, we want to live longer lives that are full. And you know what the scripture says? The scripture says that we, God has set eternity in our hearts. We're not meant for death. We're meant for life. That's why we long for longer life, whether you're a scientist or a Bible student. You're saying, how can we make this experience go longer? How do we resolve the conundrum that is before us to live lives larger than this life? The scripture says you got to get outside the box. But we can't get there by ourselves. God must grace us to walk with him in order to get there. And the message of the New Testament is that in Christ, God himself invites us to walk with him by grace through faith into life beyond death. That's the gospel message. The empty tomb of Jesus is God's invitation to join him and get outside the box. To live lives larger with him. And then, so that's an invitation to everybody. What, uh, to be like a spiritual Indiana Jones who engages the adventure and who hits the conundrum and goes, what is that? And then starts investigating the curiosities and then puts the pieces together. And then what does Indiana do? He takes the treasure home with him because he's got something of value. That's the way we approach the scripture. You engage it until you find the truth and the treasure, and then you experience the breakthrough that God has for you by grace through faith, not through the hollow, empty philosophies of man-made, self-made worldviews, not through the sin-stained, selfishness-soaked works of human ingenuity, but by God's grace through faith this is the Bible's answer to how do you resolve this conundrum. Would you pray with me? May I simply ask you, if you were to die today, where you would go? How are you solving the conundrum? And would you be open if God wanted to show you how to get outside your box? Then if you are, just say, yes, Lord, I'm listening. And then you can turn that into another step of prayer. Would you show me the way? Or maybe you're already ready then to take your third step. Lord, I want to walk with you beyond the tomb, believing your resurrection is real as the eyewitnesses of your followers declared but inviting your spirit to come inside of me. You can do that right now. Lord Jesus, forgive my sins. Come alive inside of me. Open my understanding. I've heard things I never thought of today. 
but I'm willing for you to lead me into the truth and meet you there. Come into my life, Lord, as I turn to follow you. And then believers, you've already made that decision, but perhaps today is the day where you just get close again. The scripture says, if you draw near to me, I'll draw near to you, God says. So lean into him now. And let's thank God that he has made a way where there seemed to be no way. And that we serve an Easter God who has triumphed over death and made a way for us to be with him and those we love who are trusting him forever. In your name we pray, Lord.